thus far in our study of the book of Genesis, we've looked at three arguments for the existence of God. And those arguments centered around two pieces of evidence that the Apostle Paul wrote about in the book of Romans in the Bible, which give evidence for God's existence. Last Sunday, we also examined the fascinating gap theory. And if you missed that, go back and listen to the message on the website. This week, we've reached all the way to the third verse of Genesis. We're moving at breakneck pace. This is gonna be a a wonderful series and uh, you're gonna have so much knowledge to share with your friends when we wrap this up in 2038. So I'm excited about this. And verse three will be where the creation of the world as we know it begins. It was the first day of the week, Sunday. Well, how do we know that? because we know that God rested on the seventh day and the seventh day was the Sabbath and the Sabbath is what day? It's Saturday. Therefore, the first day of the creation week was a Sunday. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter one, verse three together. Get your pen ready. Then God said, let there be light. Underline, let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So, and then underline, the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the first day. These are the first recorded words of God in the Bible. Let there be light. And the first thing I want you to notice is that God creates light independent of the sun. The sun won't be created until the fourth day. What we see here is God creating, and here's what I want us to notice. He's creating independent of the laws that govern the universe that we live in right now. Because he exists outside of the universe, he's not bound by its laws. He's literally creating the laws of the universe as he creates the universe. The laws of light are being created along with light itself during these days of creation. And so you see many people will read this and say, this is why you can't take Genesis 1 literally. Science tells us inarguably that light has to have a source. But we forget that God is the one who created the laws of the universe. He's the one who created those restrictions and so he was and is obviously free to create apart from, free from those restrictions, those laws. And if you don't believe that, then the bottom line is that you don't really believe that God created the universe because you believe that he's bound by the laws of the universe even when he's creating it rather than him being the creator of those laws in the first place. This is why we say if you can believe Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if you can believe that, you won't have any problem with the rest of the Bible. You won't have any problem believing it. So make a note of this. God created light independent of a natural source. Independent of a natural source. Why? Why does he do it that way? Is this God's way of trolling us so that we would look dumb in front of our scientifically informed friends? Why create light before the sun and stars? I believe it's to force you and I to make a choice. You see, many Christians wanna try and find a way to harmonize Genesis 1 and the creation account of the Bible 
with naturalistic science. In other words, they want to find the way for the universe to have happened naturally and then give credit to God as being the, the little bump that set the universe in motion. Maybe he can be the one who created the, the, the very, very first single atom, whatever the very, very first push was. In other words, many Christians want to give God the absolute bare minimum possible credit for the creation of the universe so that they can seem more credible to people who don't believe in God. And God's not into that. And so he lays out the days of creation in a specific order and we'll find in the coming weeks this won't be the only time he does it. So that you and I can't get around the fact, can't twist our words and get away from the fact that Genesis 1 is describing an all-powerful God creating the universe in six literal days, free and independent of the laws that govern nature. He's completely powerful without any type of restrictions. And that forces us to either believe that Genesis 1 is true or that it's not. But there's no reasonable way to ascribe Genesis 1 to natural processes. If you try to do that, you end up looking even more foolish in my opinion. Either it's accurately describing an all-powerful God creating the universe or, or it's just nonsense. And I believe that's by the design of God because he wants us to choose what we're going to believe. What is the higher authority in our lives? What God says in his word or what our culture says we should believe? Which is the higher authority? Which one will bow to the other? I think God does this in this specific order because he wants to force us into that choice. Who's gonna bow to who? But I believe there's also something hugely symbolic taking place. Now don't get me wrong, I believe it's a literal event, but this whole creation week has some enormous symbolic significance. Last week we talked about the possibility that the darkness described in verse two was supernatural in nature. And we also read in verse two about how the earth had become formless, empty, void, and, and laid to waste. And how does that situation begin to change? God says, let there be light. Let there be light. If there was no sun yet created, then the source of light was simply what? God. Just God speaking it into existence. In the first chapter of John, which parallels a lot of the first chapter of Genesis, it says this about Jesus. It's on your outlines. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Both Genesis 1 and John 1 make the same point. Life cannot begin apart from light. Unless light came into a dark void universe, unless light comes into the dark void spirit of a person, you and I, life, real life cannot begin. It was true at the beginning of the universe and it's true for you and I. The light we need, the life we need, only comes from Jesus, from nothing else. So make a note of this, physical and spiritual life could not begin apart from light. Unless God illumines our souls, we're lost in the darkness. Light itself is astonishing. And to this day, it's still revealing and concealing new mysteries to science. A simple example is that 
Light slows down when it passes through water. Some of you might remember this from high school science. Light slows down when it passes through water. But that's not the intriguing part. The intriguing part is that if you pass light through water and then back out into the air, it will speed up again when it leaves the water. What's making it do that? What's propelling it back up to speed again on the other side of the water? Quantum physicists have some very good working theories, but my point here is that light demonstrates some very strange properties. And, and while we're on the subject of light and science, I'd like to share something truly incredible with you just to continue expanding your mind with regards to the first chapter of Genesis. When we finally move on from this chapter, I want us to do so with the understanding that this chapter of the Bible tells us some things that we can know for sure. There are some things Genesis 1 is crystal clear about. God created the heavens and the earth. He did it in six days. He made it in this order. But there are some things that we may think we know a lot about when in reality our knowledge barely scratches the surface. You see, when we read Genesis 1 and act like it's all as simple as 1 plus 1 equals 2, we're demonstrating that we have no idea the sort of mysteries that are in play when we talk about the nature of the universe, never mind the origins of the universe. And the very best way I can think to demonstrate this reality that I'm talking about is by taking a few minutes to walk us through what's known as the central mystery of quantum mechanics, the central mystery of quantum mechanics. I'm feeling ambitious tonight. It's called the two-slit experiment. Isaac Newton went to his grave believing that light consisted of a stream of particles. But during his life, there were several other scientists who discovered properties of light like reflection and refraction, which point to light actually behaving like a wave rather than a stream of particles. However, Newton was the man, and so his view was the general consensus because he's basically the smartest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. After Newton died, people finally began to publicly accept the fact that light demonstrates the properties of both a stream of particles and a wave. Years later, Max Planck would inadvertently discover that light didn't even consist of a continuous stream of particles, or it didn't travel as a continuous wave, but rather light travels in these tiny packets, these tiny bundles of subatomic particles, that means even smaller than atoms, these subatomic particles called photons. That's what light consists of, these subatomic particles called photons, and it comes in bursts in these little packets of photons. With the goal of demonstrating the wave-like properties of light, a guy named Thomas Young conducted the first iteration of the two-slit experiment in 1801. And I'm not going to detail the history of the experiment. I just want to walk you through some of the astonishing mysteries that this experiment has revealed. And this is current, by the way, in the field of quantum physics. So here's the initial setup, if you can picture this. We have a a, a monochromatic light source, light that's only on one frequency. So maybe something like, like a red light that's not giving you the whole spectrum of light like white light does. It's just one basic color band. So you have a monochromatic light source. We have a barrier here. It's got one little slit in it. And then we have a back surface, like, like a wall. And we're going to shine the light, pass it through this single slit onto this back surface. And we're interested in what shows up on this back surface. Now, 
when the light comes through that slit, the light is going to behave like a wave. And so at this point, to help us understand that, I wanna ask you to picture in your mind an ocean wave, and it's coming, and it's crashing against a seawall, but there's about a three-foot gap in that seawall, and then on the other side is a big square pool that's completely still. Can you picture this in your mind? So this wave comes, smashes into the seawall. Most of the wave just hits the wall and sprays up, but in this three-foot gap, the wave shoots through and comes out the other side into this big square pool. So what happens when the wave hits this gap and comes out the other side? Does it keep traveling as a three foot wide wave all the way across the lagoon? Well, we know that's not what happens. It radiates out, right? Can you picture this on the other side in the lagoon? As soon as it comes through, it begins to spread out in a semicircular pattern. And the force of that wave is going to be strongest where it's passed straight through the gap. So the force of that wave is gonna be strongest as it passes through the gap and goes straight through and hits the wall on the exact opposite side of the gap. That's where the wave's gonna have the most force. The part of the wave that radiates out to the side, not gonna have a whole lot of force. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So that's the same thing the light does when it passes through the slit. It acts like a wave and then on the other side of the slit, it radiates out and the light is pretty faint on the sides but it's strong and intense directly opposite the slit because that's where the light could pass through the slit unimpeded. It doesn't have to bend, it can just go straight through and hit the wall. So what you see on the wall in this light experiment with one slit is a strong single column of light on the wall and maybe a little bit of light on the sides but an intense single column of light. Now, when we add a second slit to the barrier, what might we expect to see? Well, a lot of us would say, well, you're going to see two slits. Obviously, that's what you're going to see. But think with me back to the, the illustration of a wave, a seawall, and the square pool. Now, imagine that in the seawall now, there are two three-foot gaps, and they're about 10 feet apart. The wave comes, smashes in, and what happens on the other side of the seawall? Well, they, they both begin to radiate out, like if you were to throw two pebbles into a still pool. And they radiate out and they radiate out until what happens? Well, they begin to cross over. You can imagine the circles begin crossing over. And when that happens, when a high point and a low point cross over, they just cancel each other out. When two high points cross over, they actually amplify each other. They're in phase is what it's called. And then all of these waves that have crossed over hit the back wall. And the pattern that you get is called an interference pattern. And it's the one that's on your outlines. Let's put that up on the screen. And it looks like that. So you have some pretty strong bands all clustered in the middle. And the gaps of darkness are where the peaks and troughs of the wave have canceled each other out. The strong bands are where two peaks have crossed over and they've actually amplified each other, made each other bigger. So instead of two columns on the back of our big square pool on the other side of the seawall, two big strong places hitting it, we would get all these little strong waves hitting it. And if we shine the light through two slits, we wouldn't get two columns, we would actually see this because the light is acting as a wave and the light is canceling each other out and amplifying itself in certain spots. Everybody still hanging with me? Nothing too scary yet? Okay. Everything so far though, not too freaky. You know, we're not that worried because we've known about the wave-like properties of light for almost 200 years. Now some time passes and, and, and scientists begin to repeat this experiment, only this time they say, well, well, let's do it with something that we know doesn't travel in a wave. Uh, let's do it with something that 
consists of individual particles rather than one big thing that's gonna act like a wave. So we take a whole bunch of little rubber balls, right? And we, we set it up and we set up our back wall so that these balls will make a little white spot everywhere that they hit. And we fire a whole bunch of little rubber balls in this huge cloud at our barrier that's got one slit in. And on the other side of it, we get exactly what we would expect, this, this single column where the balls pass through and hit the wall. So then we open the second slit, fire a whole bunch of rubber balls at this barrier, and on the other side, we get exactly what we would expect. We get two straight columns because these balls are not traveling as a wave, they're traveling in a stream, like a stream of particles, which is what they are. Okay, everything's cool, no problem. Our thesis is solid. Things that travel in a wave are gonna radiate out. When we have two slits, they're gonna cause an interference pattern. Things that are made up of particles that don't travel as a wave, they're just gonna produce single columns. Everything makes sense so far. We're not too freaked out at all. Now where things get interesting is when scientists decided to reduce the scale of the experiment all the way down to the atomic level. As we know, atoms make up all matter. Everything we're touching consists of atoms. They are particles and therefore, they should behave like the little rubber balls because atoms don't really travel in a wave when you isolate them. So we use a special atom cannon and we fire a, a big burst of atoms at this barrier that has one slit open and we have a back surface that just makes a little white dot where the atom hits the back surface. And we open one slit, fire a whole bunch of atoms, they hit the back wall, and we get exactly what we would expect, a single column. Okay, this is all good. They're acting just like particles. But then we open the second column, and we'd expect to see two columns of atom strikes on the back wall, just like we did with the rubber balls. But that's not what we see. Instead, we get an interference pattern and so the first mystery this experiment yields is the question, why do particles, why do atoms suddenly start acting like a wave when they pass through two slits, but, but not when they pass through one? But, but it's okay, we're not freaked out. We tell ourselves, well, you know, we're shooting a whole bunch of them, so maybe even in the air, they're like colliding into each other and producing the same effect that a wave does where it cancels out certain parts. Maybe when we shoot a whole bunch of them, they pass through the two slits, they crash into each other, and, and statistically what is produced is an interference pattern or, or something like that. We, we rationalize it away. We say, okay, l l to settle this, l let's isolate the atoms that we're firing here. So in other words, we're not gonna shoot a whole bunch, we're gonna shoot one atom, and we're gonna wait long enough for the atom to pass through the slit, if it makes it through, and hit the back wall. We're gonna wait before we fire the second atom. So every atom is gonna be fired independently, not in a whole bunch, so we can make them act like particles, like the little rubber balls. So we do the same experiment, and we go straight to doing it with two slits, and we fire an atom, passes through, hits the back wall, we see the mark. Next atom hits the back wall. And they do this slowly, slowly. And they monitor it over time. And here's the crazy thing. Over time, a pattern emerges on the back wall. And it's an interference pattern, again. And this is the second mystery. How does each individual atom know that there are two slits open and therefore it needs to play its part in being part of an interference pattern. It's not part of a group. 
It's being fired independently, but one at a time, over time, that same interference pattern appears on the back surface. How how do they know to do that? How is that possible? The mystery here is that the atoms are behaving as though they're somehow linked and in communication with each other. But we're not done yet. We're smart, so so we decide we're gonna spy on each atom. And we're gonna see where it goes. So we set up an atomic detector at the first slit. And what we find is that it detects 50% of the atoms that make it through the barrier and onto the back wall. And the assumption is that the other 50% that have made it through have gone through the second slit. But here's where things get really, really crazy. As soon as we start using the detector, the pattern we get on the back surface changes from an interference pattern into two single columns. And all we're doing is using the detector. So you, you heard right. All we change is that we begin observing the atoms with a detector and they stop acting like a wave and start acting like particles the second we begin observing them. So we say, okay, let's, let's trick the atoms. Let's just nonchalantly unplug the detector. So we leave the detector there because we want to trick the atoms and we just, we just quietly unplug it and say to each other, you know, you know, with a wink, okay, let's fire it up and do the experiment again with the detector. And what do you think happens when we unplug the detector? What pattern do we get? Goes back to an interference pattern. When we fire atoms and have two slits open and use a detector, the atoms pass through and behave like particles forming two columns on the back wall. When the only thing we change is that we begin observing them with an atomic detector, they pass through the two slits and begin acting like a wave and form an interference pattern. So the fourth mystery, the big one of the two slit experiment is the fact that the atoms can tell when they're being observed and when they're not, and they change their fundamental behavior. They stop acting as a wave and start acting like particles. And science has no idea why. It is as though every atom is connected to every other atom in the universe and they are one enormous organism with collective intelligence. They know that we're watching. This is mind-blowing, so just let this sink in for a second. If your head is exploding, that's the appropriate reaction. Because if you can figure out why atoms behave this way, there's probably a Nobel Prize for science with your name on it. And you go, wow, that's amazing. And then the other part of you thinks, how in the world is he gonna tie that into the rest of his sermon? Well, hang with me. You might be familiar with the, the biblical book and story of Job. And the details of that are for another day. But towards the end of the book, Job's suffering becomes just too much for him to bear. And he finally gives in and he begins complaining to God. He begins questioning God and he begins asking God, what are you doing, Lord? And God answers Job epically in the last few chapters of the book. And God begins to ask Job questions about the mysteries of nature and the universe and science. And I want to read to you a a few highlights from God's response to Job. This is from Job 38 through, through 41, just some selections. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, 
Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's a heavy question from God. He's literally saying, Job, you have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, Job, every time you open your mouth to speak about these sort of things, you speak ignorance and people are dumber after you've spoken than they were before because you have no clue what you're talking about. Then the Lord says, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or stretched the line upon it. To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? And then he gets incredibly existential. Have the gates of death been revealed to you, Job? Have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wing toward the south? Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. You're here to correct me, Job, so tell me how the universe works. Walk me through it since you have such great understanding. And Job suddenly realizes he's made a huge mistake. And in, in Job 42.3, a repentant Job says to the Lord, I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Genesis 1 is the chapter of the Bible where science seems to collide with Scripture. I believe there's total harmony, but you know what I'm talking about. And it's very easy for even Christians to approach Genesis 1 with the attitude, you got some explaining to do, God. There's some things in here that don't quite work for me in what our society knows about science and the universe, so you better get to explaining yourself. And God says, how about you explain to me the two-slit experiment? How about you walk me through that? Tell me why the atoms are doing it. I mean, since you know, since you're the one who's got such great scientific understanding, you walk me through it. And my hope in taking our time to work through this first chapter of Genesis is that we develop a healthy sense of awe and reverence toward the power and greatness of God. And that, and that as we prod and question, we never lose that sense of awe and reverence, that we remember who it is that we're talking to. As soon as we talk about the mysteries of the universe, we're moving in on territory that in reality is so far beyond our understanding. We think we're unraveling the mysteries of the universe when the truth is that we're infants playing in a puddle. You wanna know what is a funny phrase that gets thrown around? Is that we're gonna explore the universe. Explore the, explore the universe? We understand the scale of the universe and based on the scale of the universe, you know what we have? We have our house, we have a pair of binoculars and our greatest scientific expedition is stepping out the front door onto our doormat. That's what we've done. And the greatest thing that we're gonna try and do now is walk all the way five paces across our front yard to where our doghouse is. 
That's the equivalent of going to Mars. We've seen some things through binoculars. We haven't even been around our neighborhood on a cosmic level, not at all. But we're gonna explore the universe, really? We're gonna explore the universe, okay. Ask questions, seek to understand God's word on a greater level, but remember, we are not God's equal on, on any level. Certainly not the intellectual level. The very existence of the field of quantum physics proves this point. We are not God's equal on any level. And if God is in fact God, then one of the most basic things we have to accept is there will be things that God knows and understands that are beyond our comprehension. If we understand and know everything about God, you know what the most logical conclusion would be? That he's a creation of our own imagination. If God does not exceed our imagination and our comprehension, he can't be God. He has to be a creation of our own minds. So we gotta leave room for that. Where we don't have understanding, we trust God and we walk by faith. Why? Because in all the areas where we do have understanding, he's proven himself to be absolutely truthful, 100% honest, trustworthy and good. We don't exercise blind faith where we don't have understanding. We exercise faith based on our experiences with who God is. We have an informed faith. We have a reason to trust him, to give him the benefit of the doubt. So make sure that your view of God is big enough to allow some room for mystery. And by mystery, I mean allow some room for him to be greater than you and I, because he is. Allow some room for things to exist that we can't wrap our heads around yet because we're not God. Leave room in your theology and your belief system for God to be greater and bigger than you. And this isn't just a principle for studying Genesis 1, it's a principle for life. Because you will go through, and some of you are going through, times when you will not be able to understand what God is doing in your life. And in those times, we'll often be frustrated that God won't just tell us, and we can't just understand what's going on. And I think that sometimes the reality is we wouldn't understand what's going on, even if God told us. We wouldn't get it. We couldn't get it, because we're not smart enough, or we're not mature enough, or we don't have enough faith, or any other number of reasons. And in those moments, God calls us to simply exercise an informed faith by looking back at God's track record of faithfulness in our lives and coming to the conclusion, you know what, God deserves my trust, and he deserves my faith. Even though I don't know what's going on, I do know him, I know him, and I know he's good. So I'm gonna be at peace knowing that I don't know everything. He loves me and he's good. And that's enough, I'm okay. Leave some room in your walk with God for mystery. And the way you do that successfully is by remembering that his character is not a mystery. He's good, he's faithful, he's kind, he's gracious, he's generous, he's merciful. Our circumstances and even the universe we live in may be a mystery to us sometimes, but God is not. He's not a mystery. The Bible tells us God has been revealed clearly through the man, Christ Jesus. We know what he's like. We know his personality, we know his character. So write this down. Our circumstances may at times be a mystery, but the character of our God never is. 
There'll be a lot of times in life where we don't get what's going on with our circumstances. But we never have to wonder about the character of God. What is he like? We never have to wonder that. We know what he's like. One other aspect of light that has potential implications for our understanding of Genesis 1 is the surprising fact that the speed of light is not a constant. And I'm not talking about light just passing through water and out the other side. I'm talking about in a universal sense. Light is not a universal constant. Did you know that only over the last couple of decades has the scientific community begun to open up to this idea? And the reason is because it messes with some of Einstein's most sacrosanct scientific theories. Uh, The scientific community loves to say that they're objective and loves to present that, but they're not. And you'll see evidence for that by how long the scientific community takes to come around to significant changes. It's been this way for the last 500 years because the problem is there's always going to be professors who've written papers that made them famous. Do you think they want to do an about turn when somebody proves that the theory they've built their career on is wrong? You think they care about objectivity more than their career? They don't. 99.9% of the time. Or scientists who've been teaching at an academic institution for decades and suddenly find that all the information they've been teaching is wrong and they've got to learn things all over again. Scientific community usually takes decades to come around to new discoveries. And the data for this reality that there is no universal constant of light for this velocity of light, the data has been there for years, a couple of decades almost now. And if you go Google it, you'll see that only now are there beginning to be discussions about the fact it's possible that the speed of light is not a universal constant. I'm not going to take you through all the tests and all the data, but if you want that, you want to nerd out on it, email me and I'll share my sources with you. But what I want you to notice is that if the velocity of light is slowing down across the universe, then quite simply, it means that it was what in the past? Faster in the past. Well, how much faster? There's a brilliant Canadian mathematician named Alan Montgomery who charted all the data from from more than the last 300 years, and he formed a co-second mathematical curve. Many of you are familiar with a a curve graph, and and once you plot all these points, you can see the curve any sort of pattern is taking, and it lets you play out the curve and predict where things are going. So he did this with all the data relating to the speed of light over the past 300 years. And here's where it gets really interesting for those of us who love the Bible. The math, which has been proven to be 99% or more accurate, points to the speed of light being 10 to 30% faster when Jesus was on the earth. Here's where it gets interesting. Around twice as fast during the days of King Solomon, around four times faster during the days of Abraham, and around 10 million times faster in 3000 BC and earlier, 10 million times. Are you connecting the dots on why this might be important? What is one of the greatest, most frequently touted pieces of evidence for the universe allegedly being billions and billions of years old? Well, it's the fact that we can see the light of stars and planets that are billions of light years away. So therefore, the universe must be billions of years old, if we can see that. Well, that whole idea flies out the window in a hurry when light is moving potentially 10 million times faster than it is right now. 
It changes everything. And as much as I want to do an enormous sidebar, I, I, I won't, I'll just tell you this, that the speed of light, because it's been considered a universal constant, is used in all kinds of equations that relate to things like time because it's considered to be a constant. It's, it's your anchor in a mathematical equation. It's your fixed point of reference. But if the speed of light is changing, then there are all kinds of aspects in the history of the universe, including time itself, that may have been significantly different just a few thousand years ago in ways that would absolutely boggle the mind. Well, let's look back at verse four where we read, and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Again, God creates day and night, a pattern of light and then darkness before he creates the sun or moon or stars. He puts this rhythm, this cycle in place. And then we read, so the evening and the morning were the first day. And I had you underline that. And this is a biggie. Because here God defines specifically what he means when he uses the word day in Genesis 1. Does he really mean a thousand years? Does he really mean an age? Does he really mean an indefinite period of time? It's not a mystery, he tells us what he means. God uses the word day in Genesis chapter one over and over and over for all six days of creation. And he continues to use it the same way after he's created the sun and the planets and the stars. After everything begins moving in orbit and after the light and the dark are ascribed to the sun and a single day is one uh, rotation of the earth. He still keeps using that definition, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. The word day in Genesis chapter one, however you wanna describe it, clearly refers to a literal day. One evening, one morning. He made it very, very simple. This is not one of the mysteries of Genesis one. How it works out is confusing to some of us. But what he's saying is not confusing. He's extremely clear, so write this down. Throughout Genesis one, God defines a day as consisting of the evening, and the morning, in other words, a literal day. When I was writing this, I was first gonna put a 24-hour day and I realized I can't do that. I can't put a 24-hour day because if the speed of light is slowing down, that's 10 million times slower 5,000 years ago and the speed of light is related to the function of time in the universe, then I can't say a literal 24-hour day. I don't, know, I don't know what it would be, but I do know that there are possibilities way beyond my intellect, so we'll say a literal day, a passing of the evening and a passing of the morning. And we're gonna get more into the age of the earth stuff in the, the next couple of messages. When the writers of the Bible wrote about the days of creation, it was their understanding that they were talking about literal days. Moses, the guy who authored the book of Genesis, says this in the book of Exodus, it's on your outlines. For in six days, underline six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, he made it sacred. In other words, God's pattern of creation was to be emulated, it was to be copied as the pattern for man's weekly schedule. The Lord worked, so to speak, over the six days of creation and then rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath, just as he would command us to arrange our week. His week was to be the pattern for our week. 
His literal week was to be the pattern for our literal week. Moses understood that God was speaking about literal days. And when he talks about the days of creation and the days of man's week, Moses is using the same Hebrew words. There's no confusion on the part of Moses, the guy who wrote Genesis 1. He's very clear about what he meant when he wrote it. And as I said, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks where we'll discuss the age of the earth a bit more. I just want you to recognize this, see it, and begin chewing on this and meditating on this as we work through this chapter. Well, just as Jesus entered the darkness and began to create, to make things new, he does the same thing in our lives. We were created in the image of God. And then just like the earth, something went horribly wrong. Sin entered the picture. We rebelled against God and chose our will instead of his. We chose to be the God of our life instead of putting Jesus in that position. And we became void. We became empty. We became laid to waste. We became in darkness. But then the spirit of God began to move on the waters. And in the Bible, you might remember this, whenever water is being drunk by someone, it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Whenever water is not being drunk by a person, it's a symbol of the word of God, the Bible. So the Holy Spirit began to move on the word of God in our lives. And for many of us, this is how it happened. And God said, let there be light. All of a sudden, our eyes are opened. All of a sudden, we we get it. Suddenly, the gospel makes sense and, and, and we can see it like someone has just turned the light on, just illuminated our souls in a moment. And the Lord looked upon us, our sins now covered by the work of Jesus on the cross, our sin now exchanged for his righteousness. The Lord looked at us and now was able to say, it is good, it is good. And then what does it say? The Lord divided the light from the darkness. As 1 Peter 2.9 says, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And like the earth itself, we were made a new creation. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2. He says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The pattern of those first five verses of Genesis Lay out a pattern of what God has done in each of our lives through his Holy Spirit, through his word, through his grace, through the gospel. And this evening as we get ready to pray and and, and to worship together, my hope is that we take away a couple of things from today's study. Number one, just a renewed sense of reverence and awe for God. Whether it's in the the area of science or, or circumstances happening in our life, just to remember quite honestly that we are we're nobody to question God. We're, we're nobody. We've got no business doing that. Not only because he's powerful, but because his track record of faithfulness and goodness in our lives means that he doesn't deserve to be treated with doubt by us. He doesn't deserve to be questioned by us. We've got, we've got no reason to doubt him. So I hope that we renew that sense of awe over, over who God is and over how much we don't know and how worthy he is of our trust in those areas. And then I hope that we'll each take communion, which is available in the back, and, and just rejoice over the fact that, that like the earth, we were laid to waste. We, we were in absolute darkness until, until by the grace of God, he began to move in our lives and said, let there be light.
and brought us to him. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes and let me pray for us together. Jesus, thank you so much for being the light in our lives. As your word says in the first chapter of John, the life of men is what you are. Your life itself, and and that's what you came to give us. And Father, every area of our lives, when we take a step back, and if we're honest, examine ourselves, we find that every area of our life where we have allowed your light and your life to come in, every area is better where we've done that. And inevitably, if there's an area of our life where we're not experiencing what we would term life and light, it's inevitably an area where we've limited your presence and limited our obedience to your word. So Jesus, we just again invite you in to every area of our life to illumine our souls with your presence, the light of life. And then we also just take a step back and we... We bless you and just say you're God and we're not. And we are okay not knowing everything. We are okay not understanding everything. There is reason enough to trust you, God. There is so much you've done, so many reasons to trust you, Lord. None of us has a reason to be filled with doubt or with anxiety. Because while our circumstances may be a mystery, your character is never a mystery. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We love you for who you are, and we're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us, God. Would you help us to humble ourselves before you and respond appropriately to your greatness as we worship? Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.